it's such a wonderful blessing to be here with you today. Boy, I have to tell you, I'm constantly rejoicing in these wonderful weeks. I'm always amazed at God's smiling providence upon our church in these days. It just seems every week the Lord provides me with more reasons to rejoice in this sweet time of our church life. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 in God's all-knowing plan. We have not been able to take this chapter all in one series of consecutive sermons. Rather, it's in God's great plan. We've been breaking things apart because of the schedule of this summer. And we have come to the part in Matthew chapter 18. Actually, we approached it last time I was preaching. We came to the point where it talks about church, corrective church discipline. If you're visiting with us today, welcome. So glad you're here. This is something that Jesus gives, some instruction Jesus gives a church body, a local body of people who have covenanted together that we are repentant and we live under the cross of Christ and we live pursuing the cross of Christ and pursuing Christ's likeness. In the early days of the life of the church, of course, this would happen at the moment of baptism. This was a public and formal commitment to join this, this group of people who had committed their lives to Jesus Christ. As time went on, that would happen in local churches across the world. And as time further went on, you would have people who would come, uh, who are having, having been baptized and committed to Christ, but coming and joining your church from a different place. And so they too would make a formal public commitment, just like we do in the time of membership. When you make that commitment, you join this group that is covenanted together to have faith in Christ and to live a life that follows after Christ. Well, we learned already in this passage, Matthew 18, that Jesus brings a child, sets that child on his lap, and begins to explain to his disciples that Christians are like children. And we ought to treat each other as children. Not only do we come into the kingdom as children in humility, we then treat one another as children. We love one another. We protect one another. We also rescue one another. And that's what church discipline is all about. For those among us who have covenanted together and become a part of a a local group, a a church, there is this covenant, and we don't let people fall through the cracks. We go after our brother or sister who is falling away. We do this because we love them, and we want to restore them to communion, to fellowship with the church. So, this passage begins in verse 15 of Matthew 18, this idea of rescuing lost sheep or rescuing fellow children, and it goes all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, Like I said, we introduced the idea last time, and we're going to continue that this time, and then the next time we meet, we'll wrap it up with the final passage there, the final story or illustration Jesus gives to us. But let me read the whole section, 15 to the end of the chapter, just to give you some context so we can understand what's happening. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take two, one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him, owed to him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they, were, they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered to him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. The Roman Emperor Decius ascended to the throne in 249 A.D., and within one year, he had launched, the, to that day, the largest and most wide-scale persecution of a small group of religious people called Christians. And they had suffered some level of persecution, usually sort of bound by geography or bound by just moments of time or, or, or series of moments of time, but this was the largest to that day, the largest and most wide-scale formal persecution of Christians. He did this with an edict in 250 A.D., the very year after he was put into power, he declared that everyone must prove loyalty to the Roman Empire, and more specifically to the Roman Emperor himself. And what was required of them is that they would go and they would make a sacrifice to the uh, Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, which indeed included the emperor, because the emperors from the beginning of time believed themselves to be descendants from the gods. They would make a sacrifice, they would burn some intense incense, they would say some words that would ally themselves to, to worship the emperor and all the false gods. And if they did so, they would receive an official document called a libellus, signed by a magistrate attesting to their loyalty to the Roman Empire. If at the appropriate time they could not produce the libellus, they would be marked out for execution and for Christians martyrdom. Well, as you can imagine, many people died. Many Christians suffered at this time. They were, again, at this point, this was probably the harshest. Later on, I think Diocletian surpassed him in terms of uh, martyrdom and uh, persecution of Christians, but 
At this point, this was the most widespread and legalized from that edict. This was a widespread. Many people died. Many prominent Christians died. Many pastors died. Many Christians went into hiding. And, of course, there were a number of Christians who compromised. They found a way to obtain that document, the libellus, some just by following the edict. They made their sacrifices. They burnt the incense. They said the proper words. They got the document. Others were a little more creative. Maybe they burned the incense or said a couple of suing things, got the document. Some others even bribed officials. Perhaps they knew some people or had families, uh, family members in the Roman government, and so they were able to get those maybe through bribery or through other means. Of course, there were those who were sort of the worst of all the Christians. Not only did they uh, do the sacrifice and burn the incense, but they also began to actively turn over other Christians and turn over writings of Scripture and other Christian things to the Roman Empire so that they could burn them. Well, in 251, Decius died, and very quickly, the persecution died down as well. What happened in that year caused a huge controversy in that early church. What do you do with these people, as the churches began to get back together, what do you do with these people who denied Christ? What do you do with the people who betrayed other Christians who want back into the church? What do you do with these people? They actually had a name for these people. They called them collectively the lapsi. They actually had different names for according to what they did. But in general, these are the people who had lapsed, who had fallen away in some way or another from their Christian commitment. How do you handle these people? So they had this big meeting in Carthage, the Council of Carthage, and the main pastor there, a guy named Cyprian, came up with a plan, and I'll just say it, it was a very convoluted and complicated system of how to let these people back into the churches. He said if the lapsi had actually gone all the way and, and done the sacrifices and, and betrayed other Christians, well, they were traitors, and they were never, ever to be allowed back into the church. They were never to be forgiven. They were never to be allowed into the church. If they had sacrificed and obtained their libellus, uh, then they were allowed back in the church, but only on their deathbed. Uh, the pastor would go to the deathbed, and he would allow them back into the church at that moment when they died. If they had only burnt incense, they would be allowed back in, but after many years and doing some level of penance for the church, they would be allowed back in. If they had obtained the libellus through bribery or other means, but not have done, done any incense or made any sacrifices, then they would be allowed back in the church, but only after a two-year waiting period and some questioning. And then case by case, the church leaders would determine how uh, people could, with, through penance and through other means, make their way back into the church. Well, this all sounds sort of complicated to me, doesn't it, you? I mean, this just sounds kind of crazy, and people are more complicated than that. You know, any pastor knows that People are very complicated, and their reasoning and their circumstances are different from one person to the next, and how you deal with this, it just got more and more complicated to the point it just became, in my mind anyway, ridiculous. And I, I couldn't help but think, reading about that this very week, I, I couldn't help think, uh, especially about Pastor Cyprian, had he never heard about Peter getting restored just not long after he betrayed Christ himself? Had he not read even this passage right here in Matthew 18 about how to restore Christians to the faith and then to forgive them. 
Right here in Matthew chapter 18, this is Jesus' first instruction regarding a local church. He shows us how to lovingly, gently rescue our fellow children of God when they have sinned or are sinning. And I want you to get this in your mind. I've said this before. The objective, yes, is to have a pure church, but 100% purity is impossible with sinful humans. And so the standard is a repentant life. The standard is, does this person comply and agree with God about their sin? They, they confess their sin, and they're, they're trying to flee it. This is the standard of community and communion in a local body of believers. And so the objective is to get and convince our, our failing or, or brothers and sisters who've fallen away or are in sin, is to, is to get them or convince them to go back to their repentant lifestyle and rejoin in communion with the church. And this is the objective. The objective is not to embarrass someone by calling them out. The objective is not to humiliate them or to uh, cause some sort of embarrassment. The objective is to rescue them. It's to bring them back from a destructive life. It's only that final step when they've done everything to reject the love of the church that you actually remove them from the church. And that mentality of loving restoration and care is really what we've noticed from the beginning. Again, Jesus told this to his disciples ostensibly with a child on his lap with this illustration, this living illustration that we're like children and we would not want a child to be lost. We would do everything we can. The father would even leave the, the 99 sheep to go and find the one who's lost. And this is the attitude and action that we should take toward our lost sheep. And that's the objective of corrective church discipline. So we started last time looking at church discipline and the proper steps. Jesus gives us four steps here of church discipline, and we've seen two so far. We don't need a big list of categories of penance and all this crazy stuff. We can just follow this, and the Lord will bless us as we follow the Word of Christ. Well, what did we notice last time? If you were with us last time, you, you were taking notes, you know that the first step is to speak with them alone. If you know someone who's sinning, you speak with them alone. You protect them, you protect their reputation. You don't go to other people. You speak with that person alone. You go to them in humility. You ask questions. You make sure that you're not the one who's mistaken. Maybe you misread the situation. You go to them with kindness. You go to them with warmth, much like you would a child, right? You love them. You care for them. And that's what we see there in verse 15. And if you do it right, it's successful. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, and I mentioned last time, this is where church, corrective church discipline, usually 75% of it, is complete. It's over at this point. A brother or sister is sinning, and you say something, maybe it's just mild, maybe it's just in a casual conversation, or maybe it's something more serious, and you need to go to them, but so much of church discipline ends right there. Pastors don't find out about it, people don't, other people don't know about it, it's just between a, one brother and another brother, and they, they work these things out, and the brother is repentant and confesses and finds a way that he can maintain accountability and repentance, and friends are made at that point. Like I said, this is most, mostly where church discipline happens at that sort of that ground level or corrective church discipline. This should be happening all the time, like I said, in our church, among friends, among family groups, Bible study groups, individuals who meet together, who know one another, one-on-one, -on -one, they help each other flee sin and become repentant people. Well, what if that person does not respond? Now, that brings us to step, step two we saw last week, or last time. 
speak with them, with others. Again, it is not speaking about them to others. And I showed you this Old Testament reference that Jesus gave, talking about the the witnesses. They are there like a jury. They're they're not there who have witnessed the actual sin. That would be a terrible justice system if they had to actually witness the crime. No, these people come in as a third party, almost like a jury, just to judge whether or not the the, the accusation is correct and right, and and also whether or not this person is broken about their sin, and, and they're there as a third party to see this happen. They're sort of a mediation party, a party of calmness and godly attitudes, and they're, to, they're there to see this. Again, almost every Christian I've ever known who would be confronted by others would be repentant at this stage. We don't like the fact that there's sin in our lives. We would we'd certainly not like that, that others would come and, and hearing the accusation would say, yeah, I, I agree, this is a valid accusation. There is sin going on in your life, and, and I stand behind the accuser that you need to find a way to confess. And I, again, I think most, most of us would respond at this point. So now you're looking at 90, 95% of church discipline ends at this point. Now, you probably would not insist on sinning if multiple Christians came to you as a group and said, please abandon this sin. Invoking Deuteronomy 19.15, Jesus says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, the idea is that uh, that accusation being established, this being legitimate, this is a legitimate concern. And when it's established by these two or three witnesses, you have three people, that's as big as the circle needs to be, that know about the sin. And like I said, 90% of the time, this, at this point, it's worked already. And Jesus doesn't say, by the way, only do each step once. He could do it that way, but I think there's plenty of room in the Scripture that we can see. There's a forbearance, there's a kindness, there's a patience, and I think we can do these steps multiple times as time goes forward just to show that level of love and care. So this is a beautiful process. This is not an embarrassing part of the church life. This is not something we shy away from or, or should be ashamed of because this is, this is the greatest act of love. It's the, the hardest kind of love, isn't it? The hardest kind of love. Any parent knows this. The heart of kind of, hardest kind of love is a disciplinary love. In fact, the Bible says if you don't discipline your children, you hate them because you're not willing to do the hard thing in order to love them, to correct them. No, we reach out to one another. We love one another by helping them see their sin and repent of that sin. Well, what about the 5% of cases or less when the person refuses to listen to two or three? Point or step number three, include the church body. Include the church body. And Jesus says there in verse 17, the very first sentence of 17 there, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Again, if you take into account other passages of Scripture that deal with church discipline, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Colossians 3.13, other passages in the Bible, you realize there ought to be patience and forbearance. It's not just, you know, every single week. And those of you who have been here a while, you know, we don't get up every week and broadcast sins, you know, put up on the PowerPoint. Now, let's see, who's sinning this week? Who's in trouble? No, there's patience. There's kindness. Now, why would Jesus do this at this point, though? This still seems kind of harsh to tell someone is sinning in the church body. Especially because so far, it's, it's been very clear. You're supposed to be 
quiet, it's him alone, and then two or three witnesses alone. You're not supposed to spread it. You're supposed to protect their reputation. You're not supposed to let this get out. Now suddenly Jesus does an about face and says, no, I want everyone to know about it. Why in the world would Jesus do this? Why not just send them away quietly? I I think this is where most Christians and churches and pastors begin to diverge from the instruction of Jesus. They may be okay with the first couple of steps. Speak to them alone, speak to them in a small group. But when it comes to to broadcasting that person and their sin to the church, oh my goodness, don't do that, Pastor. I've been told, Pastor, your job is to grow our church. That's the job of Pastor. The purpose of the church is to grow. And Pastor, if you're announcing people like this, you will not grow the church, you'll shrink the church. Well, first of all, the purpose of the church is not... And the pastor is not to grow the church. We're here to worship God, to obey his word. God brings the increase. Christ builds his church. But also, Jesus tells us to do it. So we're supposed to do this, as painful or as embarrassing or as weird as it may seem. Now, again, why would Jesus do this at this point? Why would Jesus want this to be public? Several reasons I've drawn from Scripture. Maybe you want to write these down. Why would Jesus want the sin and the sinner to be public before the whole church? One, I believe it is, first of all, to overwhelm that person with the love of the church. You'll notice the passage there says, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen to the church. So you get this idea. There's a a little bit of a, a narrative, a little bit of a story here. You tell it to the church, and the church people go and love on that brother or sister. They go and and try to convince that brother or sister to repent of their sin, to turn away from this destructive lifestyle. We just read that passage back up in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine? It goes on, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And that ought to be a unified message of a church. We don't want you to fall through the cracks. We don't want to lose you to sin. We don't want to lose you to to negligence. We want to love on you. And so I think that's one purpose that you would bring it to the church, one reason why Jesus would tell us to bring it to the church, to tell the church, go love on this brother. Bring this brother or sister back into the camp. Overwhelm them with love. I think another reason, as we look at Scripture, why Jesus would want this to be brought to the church, it is to warn the church And you would warn the church on on several levels. The church needs to be warned about that particular person who's living a rebellious life and has rejected the counsel of one, then two or three others who've come to him. And Paul was discussing church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. He says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a person who is permitted to continue to sin will stain the whole camp. He'll, he'll bring sin to the camp, and he'll begin to spread this sin. I've seen this very thing happen, thankfully not here at NBC. I was in a church some years ago. There was a man of great influence in the church. He was a minister in the church, and he was sinning, and he was sinning boldly. I met with the leaders of the church and said, we, we need to go to this man. We need to follow Matthew chapter 18, and If he's not convinced by one, I've gone to him already, if he's not convinced by the group of us, then we need to take this sin to the church. 
But the leaders of the church refused to call it the sin. They were embarrassed about this passage in Matthew 18 and said, you know, that's just going to cause people to be uncomfortable. It's going to be weird. We support you in every way, pastor, but not this way. We just can't do this. But once this man knew that I and some others wanted to follow this pattern in Matthew 18, but did not have the support of the leadership of the church, this man was emboldened. And he went around the church, began to spread lies and dissension. He began to make up uh, tales about the leadership of the church, about me and others, and began to, to spread gossip. Eventually, long after I was there, the church essentially died. It got down to just a, a fraction of what it used to be until finally they dealt with this man. So the church needs to be warned, not just encouraged to go love on this person, but warned. This person is living a, a life of rebellion. This person is, is living a life that rejects. So when you go to him, Paul even says, when you go and confront sin, be careful that you too are not stained. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. So there's a sense in which you, bring it, you make this public because there needs to be a warning not just uh, to the church about the sin, but the warning to the church about that person. They need to know whatever activity that person is involved in needs to be avoided. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, you announce this to the church, and it says, in the presence of all, so that the rest of the people in the church, quote, will be fearful of sinning. Again, I don't think it's healthy or helpful to announce to the church all the nitty-gritty details of that sin, but to, to call sin, sin, and to uh, speak bluntly and say this is what's going on is important for the life of the church. Another part of the warning is to warn the sinful person that they're following Matthew 18, and the next step, if he doesn't listen to the church, is to remove him from the protection, the love, the support, the encouragement, the accountability that, accountability that a church would bring. So why would make Jesus make this public? I think first, to overwhelm the person with love. Second, to warn the church about that person, that sin, warn that person about what's next. Third, to reinforce what unifies the local church. What unifies a local church? I hear people say this all the time. I've heard this through the years in many different contexts and many different people, so if you've said this, don't think I'm singling you out. I've heard it from many, many people. Many Christians throughout the years have said this. They say something like this, church, or the unity of the church, is all about relationships. Yeah, that sounds pretty convincing, right? You first hear it, oh, that sounds right. Especially given all the passages about the one another passage, about how we are to treat one another. It's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. Is it relationships above everything, though? Is there literally no reason that you should ever sever a relationship? Well, according to this passage, no. It's not relationships above everything. What brings a church together, what unifies a church, is, is not just the, the, the blunt instrument of trying to stay together no matter what. What unifies a church is that we all believe the same thing about Christ and Him crucified, and we all are behaving in a way to follow Christ and to be like Christ. That's what gathers us together. That's what unifies us. That's what our covenant's about. That's what brings us together. And once in a while, the church needs to be reminded of that. It's not relationships above all else. It's following Christ 
above all else. And yes, Christ calls us to love one another, but he also calls us to do this very thing, to sever relationships when it's necessary. The truth of Christ crucified and risen and our joint effort to believe that, to understand it, and to live like Christ, this is what unifies us. And announcing this to the church would put, again, importance on this. This person, this sinner, is not living according to that thing that unifies us. The message of Christ, our unified objective to follow after Jesus. If relationships are above all else, what happens? We, we begin to sacrifice the doctrine of that. We begin to sacrifice the discipline, accountability. We begin to lay down all those things that truly unified, unify a church. You know, taking it to the church again brings this to the attention. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, make them one as you and I are one. The triune God is one in holiness. It means perfect truth, perfect doctrine, perfect in morality. So we're unified, not simply by saying we want to be unified. We're unified by pursuing the unity that the Godhead has. Pursuing unity in truth, unity in doctrine, unity in terms of morality. That's what unifies. Well, those are three reasons, making sin and sinner public. I think why Jesus would insist that this be brought to the church. Now, I will say this. How we bring it to the church depends uh, from really from person to person. Uh, sometimes there's someone who, this happens almost every year, there's someone who hasn't attended forever, and we reach out to them, and reach out to them again, reach out to them again, call them, email them, write them, try to find this person. They never respond, and, and, and usually, because they're not causing a bunch of people to sin in the church, they're really not con- connected with the church, uh, we'll just put their name on a list at the annual members meeting. But sometimes, and this has happened at least, I think, once here, Sometimes a person is like what we see in 1 Timothy 5. This is a teacher in the church, a preacher in the church, a leader in the church. And it's very clear. You have to tell the church. You have to stand up and say, we renounce this sin. We warn you of this man. We we want this person to be repentant. Go after this person. Call them to repentance. Okay, speak to them alone. Speak to them with others. Third, include the church body. Fourth step, when a person still refuses to listen, if the church sees no repentance, excommunicate. Now, I like that word. I was, almost didn't use that word, but I like that word because it has that word commune in it. Even though that word sort of sounds Roman Catholic or too theological for some of us, you don't really hear this word. But I think it does a good job identifying that the, the core issue is communion with the saints. The core issue is fellowship with the saints who fellowship with God. The idea is that the unrepentant sinner is put out of the community, put out of the communion. He's officially separated. That relationship is officially separated. You do not commune with him or her at this point. Verse 17 If he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, again, this is grounded in the fact that Christians in a local church are unified by their common belief and their common pursuit of a repentant life and faith in Christ. That's what unifies us. That's what actually creates 
the community of the church. We've joined for that very reason. We believe this way and we want to behave this way. That's what brings us together. That's why our covenant says what it says. That's what draws us together. That's what provides the unity. This person refuses to do this, even when the church does everything it can to, to go after this person, to love on this person, to be gentle with this person, to protect this person's reputation as best we can. In the end, this person, after rejecting all this, should be removed from that communion. He should be excommunicated. And it's an excommunication that's more than maybe what we'd be comfortable with. Jesus says there, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And some people say here, oh, well, what Jesus really means here is to love them even more, like a lost person. Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors. Matthew himself was a tax collector. So this means love them more, reach out to them more, treat them like you would a, a lost person whom you're trying to evangelize. Jesus himself ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. So as to show compassion to them and hopefully evangelize them. And I've heard a lot of people say that. A lot of pastors say that. I confess I've said that. Early in my ministry, I, I thought that was the correct interpretation of this, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. But that just doesn't make sense contextually. To put them out of the church doesn't make sense. Well, that just means to bring them closer. No, it means to remove them. And I've never, not in a dozen commentaries, heard or seen any Greek or New Testament scholar interpret it the way that a lot of us do and saying, oh, this means to love them more. The phrase here is an idiom. It's a Jewish idiom. It's the thing that they said. It was a, a phrase that they used. Let them be to you as a Gentile, meaning pagan, worshiping false gods. Let them be to you a, a pagan and a tax collector. Tax collectors, many of them were Jewish, and they had uh, rejected and betrayed their people and Judaism. So what does this mean? Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It means to avoid them. It doesn't mean to be rude or unkind. You know, think of it this way. In our vernacular, we would say something like, this, something like this. Let them be to you as a child trafficker or a drug dealer. It's not that in certain contexts and there would be an opportunity to, to witness to a drug trafficker or a child, a child trafficker or a drug trafficker, I suppose. It's not that you wouldn't witness to somebody like that. However, generally speaking, these are the kind of company that we would avoid. This is not a passage about evangelism. It is about an obstinate, stubborn, stubborn, obdurate person who resists all the love the church can offer. People are uncomfortable confronting sin. It's not easy to do that. And this church has done everything we can to reach out to you and call you back. Even as a group, we're trying to get you back, and that person still rejects. This is not just a lost person. This is a person who's been in and received all the love and comfort and accountability and support that a church can provide and still rejects them. Paul said it in Romans 16, verse 17, about a very similar issue as this. He says very clearly, avoid them. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, he says about those who've been excommunicated because they refuse to repent. He says, have nothing to do with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's most clear. Paul says, He's talking about a man who has had an adulterous and incestuous relationship in the church. 
He was refusing to repent. He said, remove him from the church. And then Paul says, don't associate with him. Don't even eat a meal with him. Well, this is kind of hard. This is not very aloha, is it? You're supposed to let everybody in your eyes. Not very loving at all. And really, if you think about it, in one sense, in one definition of love, you're right. The church by this point should have gone to great lengths to lovingly bring this person back, and yet he still is insistent on severing that love relationship. And so the church is really just codifying what he has done. You insist on being out of communion with us, and we're going to officially make it so. You insist on rejecting all this love, we're going to officially make it so. So he is the one who severed the relationship, rejected the love, not the church. The church, again, is just codifying, recognizing what's going on, this broken relationship. And then they avoid him. There's also a sense, though, that this is the most loving thing they could do if that person is indeed a Christian. Because if that person is a Christian and has been disciplined all the way to this point where they're excommunicated, suddenly they're living in a vacuum without the love, without the fellowship, without the support, without all the things that the church provides. And that kind of dearth of fellowship and communion could call that person back from their sin. That's the very thing that would work in the heart of a true believer. By the way, most scholars believe that the man in Corinth actually did repent. He was the one who had godly sorrow. And Paul says, admit him back him, restore him to communion, restore him to the church. Did you know that not long ago this actually happened in our own church? We excommunicated somebody, and we loved them on their way out, and the relationship sort of, sort of died. There was no, they were not in the church anymore for a little while, and they became very broken and repentant and came back, and we restored them to our church. Beautiful story of discipline, excommunication, repentance, and a newfound, actually more appreciative communion. Now, this is an aside here. This tells us how deep and close and supportive and intimate our friendships should be within the church. The level of intimacy is what we should pursue. That level of intimacy is what we should pursue so that if we are excommunicated, we feel a great loss. Now, a lot of people never really get close to the church. They stand sort of at arm's length. They never get really close. And so if they're disciplined, it doesn't really matter to them. Nothing really changes. But we need that level of accountability. We need to bury ourselves in the life of the church and the relationships. We ought to develop these things so that if we are excommunicated, there's that, there's that fear of losing this wonderful family of faith who loves us. So Jesus' point here is avoid them, don't associate with them, have nothing to do with them. And I know those are hard words, but those are words straight out of the Bible. Don't blame the messenger, Okay? I know if a person is a coworker or a family member who's excommunicated, there's some ups and downs, some exigencies you have to work through. So you still have to have a relationship with them. You have to work through those things with the elders or with other counsel. And it's important to remember that they're the ones who are responsible for that breakup, the loss of communion, 
not the church. The church did everything they could. All right, let's wrap this up. The last part, Jesus uses some ideas he's mentioned before. I won't get into it too deep. We've talked about it in uh, Matthew 16, verse 19. So if you want to go back and listen to that or watch that video. Verse 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For whoever for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. If you remember back to Matthew 16, this language of binding and loosing has to do with people's relationship with sin. The words, just like they were in Matthew 16, are in the perfect passive, meaning when you declare someone bound in sin or loosed from sin, being forgiven... It's not the cause of what happens, what goes on in heaven. It's a revelation of what is true in heaven. Literally, the verbs would be shall having been bound or shall having been loosed. So the action of declaring someone apart from us and bound in sin is just saying what is patently obvious according to God's word and what is in heaven. This person is not living a life that's repentant and broken like a Christian. It's clear they're bound in sin. And this is just a revelation of what's happening in heaven. If they repent and they're free from that sin, then you're declaring them a part of your community and a part of someone with communion with God, and you're just declaring something that's already true in heaven about that person's soul. So to give this in a little more understandable way, Jesus says when you excommunicate, you're declaring someone is bound in sin, and this is the evidence of a heavenly truth. Likewise, if this person repents and you declare them a part of your communion, free from sin, loosed from sin, this is evidence of a heavenly truth as well. And what is this declaration that the church makes? What's it based on? Well, it's based on this four-step process that Jesus has given us, a process of discernment and discipline, accountability, and ultimately a process of love. That process includes witnesses, Verse 16 and 19, an agreement, verse 20. So verse 20 there, where two or three are gathered, has nothing to do with a poorly attended prayer meeting. It has to do with this process of church discipline and witnesses to what's happening. Loving one another as children. Going on a rescue mission. That's what this whole passage is about. You, you have this passage of the lost sheep and the extent to which the father would go to rescue the lost sheep. And now he says, I want you to, I, this is how I will rescue my sheep. Through the ministry of the church. Through you. You will be the body of Christ to rescue one another from sin. Again, we will never be free from sin ultimately until we are redeemed in our bodies. But the idea, the standard of church community and the fellowship of the church is that we are broken over our sin and repentant when confronted. All right, there's one attitude and action that should be carried throughout this whole process. Jesus demonstrates this attitude and action in verses 21 to 35. It is the attitude of forgiveness. And next time we're together, we'll talk through that final part of Matthew 18. It shouldn't take as long as it did today. I wanted to get through this. Let's pray that God would give us this level of commitment. Lord, these are hard passages. We don't like the idea of announcing somebody's sin. But, Lord, if we are faithful to do those first steps and constantly pursue righteousness with one another and holiness and, and create, as we said last time, a culture of repentance and the pursuit of Christ-likeness, 
You know, that, is, that is part of corrective church discipline. And the more we do that, the less we'll be forced to follow these steps all the way out to the end where there's a very, the very tough task of announcing it to the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the desire to do this. I pray for those who don't know Christ, they would see the level of love and level of commitment we have with one another. That we would go through this process. It's a nerve-wracking process. It's hard. It's difficult for those. It's not easy for those who are trying to, to exact church discipline. And it's not easy to do that. And so, Lord, I pray that people would see this love that we have for one another, this community that's committed to be like Christ and to believe in Christ. And I pray they'd see that kind of love that we have for one another and turn to Christ even today. I do pray, Lord, you'd sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And it's in Jesus' holy name we ask this. Amen. Amen.